It's Tuesday, August 10th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Maria Gallagher. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. We've got a trio of second quarter earnings reports. And we're going to start with Chegg. Good results from Chegg. This is the online education company. Profits and revenue came in higher than expected. They also raised guidance for the full fiscal year and shares up around 5%. This, this, this tracks. This, this seems like the right response for the stock when Chegg's putting up these kind of numbers and raising their guidance. Yeah, Chegg's actually been a pretty fascinating story to follow. Um, it was founded in 2005. It was initially your place to go to for textbook textbook purchases and rentals. So it was more of a capital intensive and low margin business. But then when Amazon invaded that textbook category, it began to expand its service offering. So in 2015, it shifted that strategy away from the textbook business to the higher margin learning category. So it's made a number of acquisitions starting with EasyBib in 2016, most recently Thinkful in 2019 to expand their service offerings. So I think that Chegg is this really interesting uh, example of it, kind of a turnaround. Like you said, last quarter revenue was up 30%. Uh, there are a total of 6.6 million Chegg services subscribers, which is 67% up year over year. There are about 19 million Chegg platform unique visitors in an average month, and 87% of students have heard of a Chegg service. So it has so many offerings. It's really kind of shifted its strategy in the past five to 10 years. And I think it's been really, really fascinating to watch. And it's really going to continue to do well as we see a lot more people who are taking classes in addition to working or kind of trying to shift career paths. This is a really useful uh, useful tool for them. Yeah, I, I was talking the other day with uh, Moser and you know we talk about how some companies can expand their optionality and others don't. And Chegg has done a great job of that. And you know this is just a, a sample size of one household, but my younger daughter is starting her first year of college this fall. My older daughter is starting her last year of college this fall, and the two of them were talking recently, just, you know, sort of uh, the older one sharing her experience and, you know, everything from, you know, the basic things of roommates and, you know, just sort of uh, social life on campus, all this. And when they started talking about classes and textbooks, not that I was eavesdropping, but the word Chegg just came up repeatedly in that conversation. So, you know, the stat you mentioned of 87% of students ever heard, you know, have heard of Chegg. It's like, yeah, that's, that's certainly been my experience as well. Yeah, Chegg study has 66 million step-by-step solutions. So about 60 million expert answered questions and answers and 6 million textbook solutions. So for really most classes you could be in, if you have a textbook, I remember when I was in college, I used it with my textbook, um, my math in one of my math classes that I had a hard time and it was really helpful with those step-by-step solutions. Um, And so I think that it's just proving to be um, a helpful addition to a lot of people's, a lot of people's needs in education. I like to think that if Chegg were around when I was in college, I would have been a better student, but I'm not, I'm not sure that's necessarily the case. Let's move on to Planet Fitness. And I don't, I don't have a great sense of this business and this stock. And I take a little bit of comfort in the fact that Wall Street appears to be agreeing with me because the stock is basically flat today. Revenue looked pretty good for Planet Fitness. They were a little lower on profits. Um, but this is a quarter where gyms were reopening so memberships were going back up you know so maybe that's a silver lining but now you think about the next 3 to 6 months and i i have a hard time imagining that 
there's going to be a lot more reopening of gyms and a lot more gym memberships being added. But uh, what stands out to you when you look at this quarter and when you think about this business? Yeah. So Planet Fitness is kind of interesting because it is a franchise business model. And so they're, they have a couple of different revenue streams. So they have their corporate owned stores, they have their franchise stores, and then they have the equipment segment. So if you are a Planet Fitness franchisee, you are required to re-up your equipment every five to seven years. And so that's an additional revenue stream for them. So it's kind of an interesting and a little bit different business model. In the past quarter, they added 700,000 new members. There have been the past six months has been consecutive months of mem- net member growth. So their total membership is more than 14.8 million. Um, And over 98% of their stores are open globally now. Um, And so more than 13 million people remained members of Planet Fitness during the pandemic. And what's also kind of interesting is that they did shift to a lot of digital strategies. So they had an app that they tried to really focus on. They had a lot of... uh, workouts on Facebook on Facebook Live and they partnered with a lot of different athletes and different kind of celebrities from the biggest loser and actually last month they hired Cheryl Kaplan as the first ever chief digital officer so I think that they are planning at least for a continuation of utilizing kind of and I guess we can say an omni-channel experience for fitness, right? So you have your app and you can work out at home and you can pay a little bit less for that, or you can go into your membership and you can go into the gym and you have all of these different offerings. So whatever your comfort level is with the gym, you feel comforted by the Planet Fitness brand. And they're still only about halfway to their long-term target of 4,000 locations. So it'll be interesting to see how that can expand in the next couple of years. That seems like a smart move because... Certainly, there are plenty of people who look at the upfront cost of, you know, a Peloton, you know, any any of these in-home equipment uh, devices and then services. And look, not everyone can afford those things. And so, for Planet Fitness to say, we're going to, we think there's a market for people who don't want to pay thousands of dollars for a stationary bike. And uh, we're going to go after it. It seems like a smart move. And you look at the stock, it's back where it was in January of 2020. And the previous few years before that was a a pretty steady upward trend. So, I, I, I don't know. I still come back to where I started with Planet Fitness, which is like, I have no idea where this is going over the next six months. Yeah. And what's kind of interesting, I mean, it's a totally different Uh, business model to Peloton, but just in terms of the market that it's serving. So people who are buying Pelotons are more likely to be people who are interested in fitness, who have already done fitness, who already like SoulCycle, who have already kind of, they're people who will spend up or go to boutique fitness classes, as opposed to Planet Fitness is really looking for about 80% of the American population do not have gym memberships. And so it's supposed to be this non-intimidating environment where you come in, there's free pizza, there's free Tootsie Rolls. It's really more geared towards people who are getting into fitness because they have to because it's good for you and they'll go on the treadmill for 20 minutes and then they'll go home. It's not really people who are fitness fanatics, which is really a much smaller segment of the population that I think Peloton and some of those more expensive high-end offerings are really geared to a much smaller adjustable market, whereas whereas Planet Fitness really has, in my opinion, a much bigger market, uh, which is just people who work out because it's good for you, but they're not that excited about working out and they don't want to spend a lot of money to do it. The Tootsie Rolls just cracks me up. I like and the pizza. I, 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 I don't want to assign any sort of mal intent 
But there is a version of that where there's just diabolical thinking at work from some executive at Planet Fitness. Like, we don't want them getting too healthy. We don't want them losing too much weight. Give them a little candy on the way out the door. I think I think it's just more, they're just trying to make people feel okay. Just say, you know, you're doing your best. And that's what I think. You go to Planet Fitness because you're doing your best. And uh, that's it doesn't have to be a crazy workout to just feel a little bit better about yourself. That's a much more optimistic way to think. So thank you for bringing that. Um, I mentioned last week, um, it's August, people. Schedules uh, get a little wonky in August. So this is going to be a short week for us at Market Foolery. We're going to be back on Monday. But in the meantime, you can check out Industry Focus, Motley Fool Answers, Rule Breaker Investing with David Gardner. Hey, check out Motley Fool Money this weekend for an interview that Maria did on the topic of investing mindset. It is a great interview. Um, so that's coming on Friday. Well done. Thank you for doing that. Oh, thank you. Um, let's wrap up with the real real, and it is a tough day for shareholders of the real real. Uh, this is the online cons- consignment business, uh, stock down more than seventeen percent this morning after they lost more money than expected. Revenue was lower than expected. If there is a silver lining for the real real, they appear to be doing a good job with getting repeat buyers. Yeah, so I actually really like the real real. Um, I think that what they've done and what I really admire about them is they really carved out this smart niche within resale. So resale is the fastest growing portion of online commerce. About 73% of consumers says they'll change their consumption habits in order to minimize impact on the environment. You have more interest from Gen Z and millennials on the resale environment. So resale is growing fast and that has a lot of competition. But then within the resale market, the real real has really carved out a niche for specifically luxury. And so it's higher orders, loyal customers, and it's vital that they're trusted in their authentication process. So they have a super high take rate of 34.5%. They have 730,000 active buyers and an average order value of about $520. And like you said, 84.5% of orders are repeat customers. So that's with the high value, loyal customers. And they're Additionally, this past quarter, they opened an authentication center in Arizona, which is prioritizing this element of their brand to making that um, more and more pivotal because that is really what what differentiates them is that authentication process. So I really liked seeing that they're focusing on that. I mean, it was not the best quarter of all time, but I do still really like the long-term tailwinds and the way that they've um, really come back pretty strong in the pandemic. They are opening new stores that are gaining more traction and, and they get they're continuing to have high net promoter scores and getting those buyers to spend more and more each time they go on the platform. So the trends that you mentioned in terms of uh, buyers who are, you know, looking to minimize the impact on the environment. Um, this being the fastest growing segment within, um, you know, the industry. Do you look at this drop today? I mean, seventeen percent. Do you look at this and say, this is a buying opportunity for people who believe in this long term trend? I I think so. So I own the real real. I have owned it for a while. It's been quite volatile. Um, I think a lot of people don't quite know what to do with it. They don't know the long-term staying power. There have been some problems with their authentication process in the past, which is why I like them emphasizing that. Um, So I think that, yeah, I think that their long-term trajectory is really strong and they've carved out like a really interesting niche within the resale market. And just to put some numbers around the volatility, this company has been public for about two years 
And depending on what they were looking at in the last two years, it's been as low as six. It's been as high as 30. It's currently in uh, around the $13.5 range after the drop today. Last question, and then I'll let you go. This is a $1 billion company. They've got trends on their size, uh, on their side. Um, they've got margins on their side. Do you think five years from now, this is a standalone business? Because this does seem like a business with enough going right for it, both in terms of their operations and the overall trend, that a larger e-commerce player could come in and make them a large offer and they become part of someone else's universe. Yeah, I think that that's a fair guess because um, you see even trends like Etsy recently bought Depop, which is in the resale market. So you see a lot of uh, these bigger companies starting to pay attention to this segment of the market. And the Real Real has a very strong brand name associated with it. It has really loyal customers. It has that very distinct niche within luxury resale. So I think if I was a bigger company, even if I was Etsy, I would start looking at it and thinking, oh, well, this is kind of an interesting thing that um, if you're going to buy it or build it, I think this would be something you could buy because it takes a long time to build out build out that customer base and that customer trust. But, and I know I said la one last question, but one more based on what you just said. Um, it also sounds like that the branding of the real real is strong enough that if they were to get acquired, it would be a mistake. Let's say it's Etsy. It would be a mistake for Etsy to rebrand it as like Etsy fashion or Etsy luxury. Like just keep it as it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Maria Gallagher, great talking to you. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show's mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.